you would, uh, turn with me to the book of Daniel. Look at chapter 10. I'm, I want to continue. We were kind of just ran out of time last week before we got very far into our study on, on angels. And so I want to pick up where we left last time. But I did not read chapter 10 last time. But I think I will read chapter 10 uh, tonight so that we can have uh, this text in our mind. And then I'm going to go back to where we stopped last time and pick up there and continue to talk a little longer tonight about the doctrine of angels. But let's read chapter 10 together. And particularly just note all this language about uh, the angels and these heavenly beings that are interacting with Daniel here in this chapter. Chapter 10 says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true. And it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the, for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen and a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes were flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. And so I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. And then I opened my mouth and spake. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now my strength remains in me, and no breath for now, no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. 
Be strong and of good courage. For as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of the truth. There is none that contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And so throughout this chapter, we see uh, this, this scene where Daniel is having this vision. He is seeing these heavenly beings. And we're going to talk when we go through the text of Daniel 10 about uh, some of the details about this vision and what he sees and, and the people that are involved here uh, in the chapter. But we'll leave that uh, for another day. But uh, to return our attention back to uh, our discussion of angels that we see here and we saw also in chapter 7, 8, and 9, uh, we'll pick up where we left off uh, last time. Let me remind you, uh, as I've mentioned from week to week, that we are in Sunday school mode if we, if we want to be. If anybody has a question, it's perfectly fine for you to uh, raise your hand or speak out or ask a question, and uh, that would be just uh, a good, this would be a good time uh, for anything that might come to your mind to ask uh, a question about it. Now, last week, uh, we talked about uh, just briefly angels. The word angel comes from the term, term both in Hebrew and Greek that means a messenger. And so our word angel that we use when we talk about angels is more about their function and not about their being. Now, all, most of our questions are about their being. You know, what are these creatures? What are they like? And the word angel really doesn't answer that for us. We saw last week that they are created beings that they are spiritual beings, that they are, they are intelligent, thinking, rational, discerning beings, that they have great power, that they uh, exercise uh, morality, moral judgment, uh, that they are great in number, that they are structured and organized. The world of angels and the world of demons is a structured and organized world. I suggested to, to you that it is certainly more sophisticated and complex and structured than our own world is. We also, when we were closing last week, I was talking about that there are different classes of angels. I mentioned seraphim and cherubim. And then where we stopped last week was uh, I was bringing to your attention the fact that there are two angels in the scriptures that have proper names and that they both appear to us here in the book of Daniel. Uh, the first one is Gabriel. If you look back at chapter 8, verse 16, Gabriel, it says in verse 16, And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And those, so, so then Daniel is going to interact with, uh, with Gabriel there in chapter 8. Over in chapter 9, verse 20, in 21, we see him again. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, if we'll flip over to Luke, and we'll come right back to Daniel, but you'll remember that this is not the only place we're going to see Gabriel uh, appear in the scriptures. We're going to see Gabriel in Luke chapter 1. 
And we're going to see him twice here in Luke 1. In verse 19, it says, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Now the good news is Zechariah receiving the word about John the Baptist. And so then when we skip down to verse 26, we have another birth foretold. Not John the Baptist, but this time the birth of Jesus. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And so we see Gabriel in these four verses in Scripture. Now the other person that has a name uh, in the Scriptures is Michael. We see him in 1013 that we read just a few moments ago where he is called Michael, one of the chief princes in verse 13. We read about him again in verse 21 where Michael is called your prince, which would indicate to us that Michael has a special connection to Israel and to God's people. Of course, we... We know that from how we see him in the scriptures. Now, over in the New Testament, we see Michael again. Jude, verse 9. Jude, verse 9. Says this. But when the angel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said... The Lord rebuke you. Now, he is called here an archangel. We see that term also in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 where it says that Christ is going to return with the voice of an archangel. So we have that term there. There's not the name Michael or any other name attached to it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, but the term is found there. Then over in Revelation 12, In verse 7, we read this. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for him in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And so we see here Michael in battle. So in Daniel 10, when, when uh, Michael is mentioned, he is, uh, he is resisting the, the king, the prince of Persia, who is going to be, as we'll see in Daniel 10, a demonic force. And here in Revelation, we see Michael fighting against uh, Satan and his uh, angels, his evil angels. Now, I want to ask a question as a, a little side note here. How many of you have ever heard the question asked, Is Michael Christ? One, two, three, four. Okay, so several of you have heard this question. It is something that comes up from time to time. Let me see if I can point out to you one of the reasons that it comes up. If you would look with me at Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. 
where we read this. Now, keep what we just read in Jude 9 about Michael in mind. In fact, we'll, we'll turn back over to Jude verse 9 uh, after we read these three verses at the beginning of Zechariah 3. But notice what it says here. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, let's pause there for a moment. Who do we think and believe that the angel of the Lord is? We believe that that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see the angel of the Lord appear all through the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord was actually the pillar of fire that followed Israel at night. And the cloud by day, is just, is, it actually tells us back in, uh, in those accounts that that was the angel of the Lord. We see him speak to several people throughout uh, the Old Testament uh, days. He appears to Joshua and others. The angel of the Lord. So we see him several times in the Old Testament, and, and it is our you know strong understanding that that is a, a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ when we read about the angel of the Lord. One reason we think that is because several cases where the angel of the Lord is spoken of, it speaks about him as he talks and as he says things. He speaks as if he is who, as if he is in fact. The Lord, And so he doesn't make that distinction as some other angels do, that I'm not God, don't worship me. Uh, he actually speaks the angel of the Lord as if he is the Lord. Zechariah uh, here in verse three, chapter 3, verse 1, let's continue. The angel of the Lord and Satan standing in his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is, is, not, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And so what we see here is we see the angel of the Lord say, which we believe to be Christ, say, the Lord rebuke, rebuke you, O Satan. Now we go back to Jude 9 that we read just a moment ago. And you'll notice the parallel here. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And so we see the angel of the Lord, Christ, do that. We see Michael said to have done exactly that. And so many have raised the question, might this primary chief archangel actually be Christ? Now, I'm not going to tell you what I think today. But I will tell you what, we will talk about it when we get to chapter 10. But let me, uh, let me mention to you that uh, it comes up from time to time. And if you're ever reading uh, John Calvin's commentary on Daniel, you'll read this. In his commentary from uh, chapter 10, he says, Something, the word Michael represents Christ. And I do not object to this opinion. Clearly enough, if all angels keep watch over the faithful and elect, Still Christ holds the first rank among them because he is their head and uses their ministry and assistance to defend all of his people. But as this is not generally admitted, so he's saying, I don't object to the idea that Michael is Christ, but then he's saying, but it's not generally agreed to by everybody that that's the case. He says, I leave it in doubt for the present, and I shall say more on the subject in the 12th chapter. So when we come to his commentary on the 12th chapter, which we'll get to later. But let me just read what 
Calvin says in chapter 12's commentary. He says, by Michael, many agree in understanding Christ as the head of the church. But if it seems better to understand Michael as the archangel, this sense will prove suitable for under Christ as the head, angels are the guardians of the church. Whichever be the true meaning, God was the preserver of his church by the hand of his only begotten son. And because the angels are under the government of Christ, he might entrust this duty to Michael. And so John Calvin kind of like says that he can go either way. And he's not discipling by the issue. But I just mentioned Calvin just to let you know that it is something that comes up from time to time. And it is an interesting uh, question to consider. And if you're ever studying Daniel in detail and you come to these passages that mention Michael, uh, you may see commentaries take up this subject. So I'll just make you aware of the subject uh, so it won't be a surprise to you when you see it. Now getting back to our, uh, our uh, consideration of angels, there are also, besides these two named angels and these classes of angels that we spoke of, the scriptures also talked about angels in terms of their being elect and fallen angels. 1 Timothy 5.21 1 Timothy 5.21 says this In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without, preju without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And so he makes this interesting statement here. It's uh, interesting for two reasons. One is that he is acknowledging that, as I mentioned just briefly last time, that we as Christians in church, in Christ's church, we are uh, in some sense that we don't fully grasp and understand in the presence of angels. And he makes reference to that here in this verse, that we are in the presence of the angels. But he also calls them here the elect angels. When we are to do right, when we are called to be holy because of the angels, it is specifically the holy elect angels that he has in mind, that is the chosen angels. As God chose them, to a state of holiness and happiness. As soon as he created them, he, he confirmed them in that state. The providence of God was not only concerned in the preservation of them in their holy state of being when created, but also that they would continue in this state of constant obedience and perfect holiness. And so God elects certain angels that from the time that they're created in holiness, that they will be maintained in holiness, they will always be holy, they are fixed in that uh, holiness from uh, the time of their creation. They are immutably fixed by the will of God and have from their creation continued in that state and ever will as they enjoy the favor and presence of God perpetually, these elect angels. Now, the scriptures also speak of another group of angels, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell 
and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And so what we have described here are there are angels that sin and they fail. And from the time that they uh, have fallen, instead of being preserved and reserved as the elect angels are in holiness and in blessing, they are being reserved and preserved for the time that they are punished and come to their ruin. And so we see the complete opposite state and fate of these two groups of angels, the fallen angels, the angels that sin, and the elect angels, the ones that were chosen by God. Jude, again, verse 6 this time. The book of Jude, verse 6, says this. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And so he's referring here again to angels that left their proper place, left their, uh, the, the, the purposes, that, purposes that they were created for, but they were not God's elect angels. They left those positions, and now they're just being reserved for judgment. Over in Revelation 12, I'm not going to turn down and read it. We read it just a moment ago about the angels that followed Satan, that fought against Michael and his angels. And so here we have Michael and his company of angels, the elect angels, the holy <coughs> angels of God. And we have Satan, and we have the fallen angels, the ones that sinned, the ones that did not keep their proper place. We have those angels as well. And so that's the world of conflict that we live in that is swirling around us. And that is the world of conflict that in Daniel chapter 10, we have this as if the curtains were pulled back. And something that we could, we could never know about is revealed to us there about these conflicts that are going on uh, in the spiritual world that we see there in Daniel chapter 10. Any questions about that as we move on? Okay. Let's talk just a moment about their history. It's always been an interesting question. When were the angels uh, created? Uh, we know if we turn over to the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 1, for example. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. It says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And so we know that by the seventh day that God not only had created our world that we, we know and think about, but he had also created all the host of heavens as well. So the angels were also uh, created during that time period. Over in Job 38, we have this interesting statement. Job chapter 38 Let's look at verses 1 through 7. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? 
and who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And so here's something that kind of is a hint to us about, about the creation of angels. Apparently, as God was laying down the foundations of the earth, uh, the dry land and the seas were being separated, those kind of things, the angels were there, and they were shouting for joy as they watched God do his creative activity. And so when we think back about uh, the days of creation, uh, I believe it's on the third day that what we have described here, setting the foundations of the earth, is going to be happening. Now let's turn over to Psalm 104. Psalm 104 is a very interesting psalm in regard to creation. I want to read the first four verses, and then I want to point out to you some things in this psalm. But the first four verses say this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He rides the clouds his chariots, and he rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire. And that fourth verse there is the verse that we have quoted in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, as being about angels and explaining to us that the angels are, in fact, God's ministering spirits that he sends out to do his will. And we'll, we'll see that uh, in a moment. But what is interesting about Psalm 104 is that it talks about, throughout this psalm, uh, a parallel to the week of creation. In verse 2a, we read, covering yourself with light as with a garment. And when did that happen in the creation? On, this, on the first day. So that happened. The next thing we read about is... Uh, him in the rest of that verse, he says, stretching out the heavens like a tent. When did that happen in the week of creation? It happens on the second day. And then right in connection with that, the creation of the heavens and the skies, in connection with that, he makes his ministers winds and his ministers like flaming fire. So angels, uh, many suggest, are connected to the second day of creation. Now what is interesting about this psalm that would make that be very plausible is when you look at verses 5 through 18, he is going to talk about the earth and the plants that, are, that come into being. In verses, 9 through, in verses 19 through 23, if you follow down, he starts to talk about the moon and the sun, which is the fourth day of creation. If you go down to verse 24, he starts talking about... Um, Verse 25, here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable. And we know that the sea creatures are created on the fifth day. And then down in verse 27, he talks about how the animals he feeds and how when he breathes his spirit into the animals, they are born. And in the verses 27 through 30, he talks about the earthly creatures. And then in verse 31, on the seventh day, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, which is exactly what God does on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day. And so I would suggest that Psalm 104 does, in fact, 
follow those days of creation and uh, might suggest to us that the angels were actually created uh, on the second day for you know it's just a matter of kind of curiosity but it is interesting that we see that in Job and also in Psalm the Psalms what do they do now what do the angels do now let's turn to a few verses Revelation chapter 5 verses 11 and 12 Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and, and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so what we see here is we see just the masses of angels, the host of heaven, uh, in their worship of God. And so I would suggest that one of the first things that we see and know about the angels is that they worship and they adore God. That, that is one of their primary functions, that that's what the holy angels are, in fact, doing. Then we see, I would suggest secondly, that God employs them in administering his gracious and providential government over the world. Look at Psalm 103. Verse 20. It says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all of his hosts, his ministers who do his will. And so the indication here is that God's ministers go out into the world, they do his will in the earth, whatever he sends them to do, uh, they are busy. Uh, in that, engaged in that activity. Now, we know some of those activities uh, are certain things. For example, turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Now, one of the things that we don't often think about when we think about the Ten Commandments and Mount Sinai and what happened there, we don't, we don't think about uh, the activity of angels in that process. But from the very, very beginning of ancient Jewish times, there was always the belief that the angels were involved in the giving of the law. And so when Moses was, all that activity was going on in the mountain, and you know, the people were afraid, and they were away from the mountain, and Moses goes up by himself. We don't know exactly all that happens there, but it was always tradition that the angels were involved. But if you look with me at Acts 7.53... We actually have this confirmed to us uh, twice in the New Testament. Acts 7.53. He's speaking to, uh, he is, he's preaching to Israel and he says, You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So what he's saying is, even though you believe that the law was given in some form or fashion that the Angels help deliver it. Even though you think that, you still don't pay any attention to it or obey it. We see it also in Galatians 3.19. I don't know if you've ever noticed this statement in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3.19. 
Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary or by a mediator. And so we have confirmation here, as Paul writes in Galatians 3, that in some way or another the angels were involved in the giving of the law there at Mount, Mount Sinai. And after all, we shouldn't be surprised because what does the word angel mean? It means to be a messenger, to bring the word of God to men. Now, let me ask this question. What might this indicate to us about what angels are doing now, about their interaction with us as his church? Uh, might it be that when we hear preaching or we're reading the scriptures or we're reading a book or whatever, however we're in, uh, engaging ourselves with the word of God, and sometimes things just like really grab our attention, uh, sometimes things that we've seen a thousand times before never impressed us before, but now, but now it really catches our attention. Might it be that God is helping us? Uh, we know he uses his spirit to do that. Might the angels be involved uh, in somehow uh, helping us to understand and perceive the word of God? Uh, just something for us to think about. We know from Daniel in Daniel 10 that we read that the angels are involved in national events. The prince of Persia withstood me. Now what we know from what we've already seen in Daniel is that Persia rises up and destroys Babylon. But then suddenly, suddenly and remarkably, Greece utterly destroys Persia. And in that chapter we see that the prince of Greece is going to come and that... Uh, and that there are these demonic forces behind these world powers that are going to suddenly rise and fall. And so we know that the angels are involved uh, in these events. We know from Hebrews 1.14, quoting from Psalm 104, that his uh, angels are ministering spirits. And this raises a number of interesting observations. These holy, glorious, lofty creatures who enter the presence of God are serving the lowly, fallen, polluted sons of Adam. And if you just stop and think about this situation, that they are ministering spirits. Let's look at uh, Hebrews 1.14. Let me just turn over that one. Made reference to it, but let's, let's look. Let's read that verse. Hebrews 1.14. Verse 7 quotes from Psalm 104, by the way. Hebrews 1.7 is the quotation there from Psalm 104. He continues to be talking about angels down to verse 14. And he says this statement in verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And so these mighty angels, these glorious creatures are serving uh, what are fallen lowly men. It is something that really st uh, should stagger uh, our imagination if we think about what is going on here with the holy angels. But there's another question that, uh, that it raises that, uh, that I was thinking about when I was thinking about them serving us. Do you suppose that they serve us even before we are saved? This verse is talking about the fact that the angels engage with those who at some point in their future will inherit salvation. 
I would suggest to you that from our birth that the holy angels are involved in our lives. Whatever God would have them to do, whatever he would give them to do uh, in reference to uh, our development and our protection. I would suggest to you that they serve us, they protect us from birth uh, even before we enter into faith and union with Christ. And they do it for the very reason of preserving us as God's elect so that we will someday uh, in our life experience come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in Him. And so I would suggest that this angelic help for God's people doesn't begin after they become Christians, but that from the, from the very beginning of their life, uh, these angels serve uh, God's people. We know that they serve us in physical protection. We see in Psalm 91, that verse that is quoted by our Lord, that he will be protected and, and not uh, so that he won't uh, so that he won't be dashed upon the rocks. He'll be protected from stumbling on the rocks. We see it in Daniel 3 and in Daniel 6. Because what happens when there's fiery furnaces? So what happens when there's lion's dens? In both cases, angels appear there. And they save the people of God in those places. Acts chapter 12 and verse 11. Has an interesting statement here. Acts 12, 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And so uh, here, he, he very, Peter very specifically says, I'm convinced that the reason I was delivered and rescued uh, in this case is because God sent an angel and you can read the text from verses 6 and following how that he was delivered by uh, an angel from the Lord. May I suggest to you that physical, physical protection is the least significant thing that the angels do for us. If we think that physical protection is the greatest thing that they do, we're showing just how carnally minded and how earthly minded we are. Our spiritual life is paramount. Our holiness is the important thing. Our sanctification and our spiritual growth is more important than our physical well-being. I suggest that that is what the angels are mostly about. And so if we have the idea that we have a guardian angel and if we're about to have a wreck and all of a sudden, you know, our brakes work double portion and we stop in a miraculous way. And, you, you do, and we do hear incredible stories sometimes from God's people about things that they truly don't understand that happen in ways of physical protection. But I would suggest to you uh, that, uh, the, that, that the angels are not mostly about that. We are in a war that rages around us. It is more serious than what's going on in Iraq or Iran. It is uh, more dangerous to us than those things. And they fight for us. And in those battles that we don't even know about, uh, I would suggest that they are fighting uh, for the protection, the spiritual good of God's people. We, we kind of accept on the surface that evil angels are seeking to tempt us, to attack us, to discourage us, to destroy us 
spiritually. We, we, we think about demons and we think, that yeah, that's what they're doing. But we don't think the equivalent for God's holy angels. We don't think that they are in a battle to protect us, to keep us from temptation, to shield us from the attack of the evil ones, to encourage us in our faith, to save us from destruction, both body, but also in our souls. And I would suggest to you that that is the great work of the holy angels, that they are doing for our good what the evil uh, forces are doing to try to uh, bring harm to us in either body or soul. And then one last thing I'll mention that the angels do is in Luke 16.22. And that is that they accompany, they accompany, accompany us uh, into heaven. Luke 16.22 says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And so I would suggest to you that one of the things that's indicated here is that when we die, that the angels, uh, that the angels come and comfort us and take us uh, to be where God's people are. The bosom of Abraham is another way of saying the, the people of God. It is another way of saying Christ's church. You know that the scriptures tell us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, when that happens, we're not only, it's not just talking about the Lord in the sense of Jesus himself, but I would suggest to you that being with the Lord is to be with Christ and his body where we join the company of other believers in heaven and we are with Christ and his body in heaven and that the angels escort us there into Abraham's bosom to be with the people of God. And that, that is one of their functions as well. Now we know, let me kind of go quickly here. We're not going to get through this. Let me talk about some lessons that we can learn just very quickly. We can learn from the angels about the centrality of worship. The angels' first order of business is the constant worship of God. That should be an example for us. They worship him as creator and redeemer. We should draw from that lesson. It should be one of our primary purposes in life as well. Another thing that we can learn from the angels is this. We learn about fairness and justice. God's dealing with the angels on the basis of strict justice is both fair and good. When we see the spiritual state and the destiny of angels, we are given an example of what it is like when God acts according to those principles. In other words, when we look at angels, what we see is we see God acting towards a group of beings, a company of beings, a great company of beings, strictly on terms of justice. Each angel stands in his own right, for better or for worse. There is no substitute. There is no grace or mercy. Strict justice is on display in the angelic host. And so the fallen angels are reserved for judgment. The elect angels are fixed in holiness and blessing. We also learn something about grace and election. Whether it is in angels or whether it is in men, the gracious election of God is the basis for what is holy and what is, will be blessed. It is always the grace of God that determines that. In the angelic host, 
there are the elect angels, the blessed ones and the cursed ones that are the non-elect angels. We see that also uh, in men as well. We also see the wisdom and necessity of federal representation and substitution. Now, some of you may know the term federal representation, you may not. But it's just the idea that, that there is uh, one that stands uh, as the head of mankind, that would be Adam, and he represents all men in what he does. He is their head and their substitute. And we read about it in Romans chapter 5, and because we are out of time, I'm not going to read Romans 5, but it talks there about how that by the sin of one man, Adam, all were made sinners. And then by the righteousness of the one man, Christ, many have been brought to righteousness. And so we have this principle of substitution. Now we see the wisdom and necessity of it when we look at the angels. We tend to fight against the idea of being represented by somebody else. It's not right. It's not fair. It's not good for Adam to represent me and do that to my harm. It's wrong. That's what our, that's what our uh, natural uh, inclination is to say about this. And we resist the idea of having a federal head or that our future is determined by the man Adam. And yet from the angels we see the truth that without a substitute and without a representative, there can be no salvation. If it is wrong in principle for Adam to stand in our place, then it is also wrong as a matter of principle for Christ to do so as well. And so what we see in the wisdom of God and in the necessity of substitution and having a federal head in Adam and having a federal head in Christ is that we need to have substitute. We need to have someone to represent us. Because if we ever fail, we would be like the angels. And we can never be remedied. We can never be saved apart from the wisdom of God that has made the world stand uh, in this way. I want you to turn with you to one other verse. 1 Peter chapter 1. And then we'll close. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to leave you with one last idea and then we'll close this subject. 1 Peter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that, na that, have na that have now been announced to you through those who preached and the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then notice this last phrase. So the prophets prophesied about salvation. They, they wanted to understand it. They couldn't understand it fully. And then it says this. Things into which the angels long to look. Now, the word long there uh, means to covet, to desire, to lust for, to crave for. It is a strong, passionate interest in something. The term look is the idea of stooping down like this to look down on something, to carefully look at it. It is to look with the head bowed forward. It is to look with the body bent forward. 
It is the word in Luke 24, 12 that is used to describe them going to the tomb. When they, they go, they want to look, they want to look into the tomb to see uh, whether or not Christ is, is in fact gone. And they stoop down to look into the tomb to see that it is in fact empty. That's the word that we have here. It's also the same word in John 20, speaking about Mary and Peter. And so the angels are pictured as having, uh, as being amazed as they see God's salvation. And they stoop down to closely examine and investigate God's redeeming purposes. All they can do is stoop down in wonder and worship as they see what God is doing among sinful men. Sinful angels are not being saved and recovered. What a wonder it must be for them, the angels, to see men that are fallen and guilty and ruined to be rescued and delivered, something that they've never seen an angel, a fallen angel, uh, be rescued and delivered uh, from destruction. Wonder, what a wonder it must be for them and should be for us that a vile, corrupt, corrupt sinner is made holy through Christ. Think about this for a moment. Those angels who rejoiced when God's creation was brought into existence, those same angels who ministered in the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and some of those fantastic things that happened during those days, those angels that assisted in the giving of the law to Moses and to Israel, those angels who were there with Elijah and Daniel and Zechariah, those angels who announced the birth of John the Baptist and of Christ and, and then came down as a large host to glorify God as the Christ was being brought into the world, those same angels that came to him and strengthened him during his temptation, those angels that appeared to him and strengthened him in the garden, those angels that were there on the morning of his resurrection, those angels that broke into praise when he ascended back into heaven, those angels that will come with Christ at that great harvest at the end of the world, what high and exalted privileges those angels have, even now in ways that we can't grasp or understand. They have access to the very presence and glory of God. And despite all of this, those angels passionately desire to stoop down in wonder to be here with us to see what we are doing and to see what Christ is doing in his church. We may not take it that seriously when we gather for our worship services. We may not esteem it very much. We may not uh, be looking forward to it very much. We may not think that it is any big deal what we do when we meet together. But the holy angels of God are waiting with eager anticipation to see what we are going to do and to see what God is going to do in us. They long to see it and to understand the preaching of the gospel, the conversion and sanctification of sinners. And when angels get together... Uh, I've suggested to you that this is what they talk about, the salvation of sinners. And the scriptures tell us that they rejoice when even one sinner is brought to repentance. They stoop down to carefully 
examine these things. And so I would suggest that it ought to give us an idea of how we ought to esteem what we do when we gather as God's people to worship together. Let's close with a word of prayer.